This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. If you're going to class, follow that guy. Well, good morning. morning. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) A couple of ideas, uh, just to get your juices flowing before I I get into what I want to talk to you about this this morning. Um, I watch Grant preach and uh, other people preach, and I realize in today's world, uh, when you preach, you're supposed to quote movies and, and do illustrations, and I don't watch the same stuff you guys watch unfortunately, but I'm going to go back to the 90s. There was a series um, in the 90s. Ernest goes to camp. Ernest goes to school. (laughs) Ernest in the army. Ernest scared stupid. Okay. Remember Ernest? Give me Ernest. There's There's Ernest. Ernest had two, two memes he brought to our culture. Uh, one of them was uh, when approached, well, Ernest messed things up for pretty often. He was pretty stupid, actually. Uh, but he would never m- admit it, and, but he would do something. And when confronted, his classic line always was, do I look like I have stupid written all over my face? You might remember that. Uh, <laughs> from, and I'll let you be the judge of that. Okay. <clears throat> the second thing uh, that uh, he would say over and over again in his movies was when things happened, uh, they always happened to other people, they never happened to Ernest, but it was always Ernest's fault. And Ernest would always say when he escaped or something happened, he would, would always say, what luck. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing I'd like to do to get your juices flowing is I want to take you to, to two verses. You don't have to go there, I just want to remind you of them. One is Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus. You remember the, the story there. Jesus has re- been resurrected from the dead. He encounters two guys on the road. They eventually recognize him and, and realize who he is. He's the risen Messiah. And um, uh, he, at that point, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Basically, what he told them, he took them back in Scripture and said, all of that Scripture points to me. He did the same thing in John chapter 5, verses 45 and 46. He was uh, rebuking the Pharisees there for their unbelief. And he says, you know, there's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The point there is that when Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, he was writing about Jesus Christ. So what we've done, we've taken those two verses, we bring those two verses to you all the time to remind you that we always look for Christ in Scripture, even in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is about Christ. David and Goliath is not about David. And what a a great young man he was, David and Goliath is a picture of Jesus Christ. All right, David slew the giant. 
as eventually Christ came to slay the giant. So we're always looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Because to do otherwise is to moralize. And we have taught you not to moralize, but to look for Christ. I'm not a bad person, but we're going to moralize this morning, okay? Because moralizing in its right context, in the right circumstance, is okay. As long as before we moralize, as, as before we look for the moral lesson in something, we ask ourselves, how does this show me Christ? How do I get to Christ from this passage? And once we do that, and that's what we'll do this morning, then we can learn lessons from the characters in the Bible. The character I've picked for you this morning is Moses. We're going through Exodus. We've been going through Exodus on Friday nights here, and I'm real familiar with Moses. Uh, Moses is somebody that's familiar to most of you here. Uh, most of what I'm going to tell you this morning is not going to be new information, but I'm, I'm going to remind you of it uh, to make a point, to bring you to the point. We will do this in three parts. I'm going to talk about Moses' uh, life before faith. I'm going to talk, uh, and, and number two, I'm going to talk about Moses' life after he came to faith. And then we're going to say, let's moralize. What lessons might you and I take away from the life of Moses? Okay? That's where we're going this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, to you this morning, um, as always, um, to worship you, to seek you, to find you, and to find what you have to say to us in the, the pages of Scripture. And I ask this morning that you give me clarity, that you help me to um, make the words on the page sound as if they're from you, words to us, lessons to us. I pray this morning, Father, that uh, you've um, given us ears to hear this message, that um, you've given us hearts to receive this message. Father, and I thank you for all the ways that you bless us through your word. And I pray that we would be blessed and that you would be glorified by our hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. We are in the midst here in this passage of what we call the roll call of the faithful. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us of all the faithful people from the past, from the Old Testament characters. Uh, starting in verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I'm just going to use this as a springboard. We're going to spend the majority of our time in the Old Testament. That's where we learn the most about Moses in Exodus chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to go through the life of Moses here. And again, uh, probably nothing new for most of you. The context of Moses' life uh, uh, starts in Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Jacob had 12 sons. 12 sons were a family. And 12 sons, I won't go into all of the details, but the 12 sons ended up in Egypt. And they prospered in Egypt. And that family grew and grew and grew for 430 years there in Egypt, as God had told them they would. 
and uh, they became a nation. They became a huge uh, population of people. Um, they were free men. They could do uh, what they needed to do, what they wanted to do. Pharaoh had favor with them. They had favor with Pharaoh. Then a new Pharaoh came to town, and this Pharaoh uh, um, was different. Uh, this new Pharaoh decided that they were a threat. There was too many of them, and he was threatened by them, and so he issued an edict. He said, we've got to do some population control here, and he issued an edict that every uh, male born would be thrown in the Nile and killed. That was the edict. Some people obeyed him, and some people didn't. But eventually he said, every male will be killed. Enter the scene, a woman named Jacobed, Moses' mother. Moses' mother was not about to obey that edict. She was a Levite, and she was married to a Levite priest. So Moses, by heritage, was a Hebrew Levite. Um, he was a member of the priestly line. That's important for where I'm going to take you in this story. They did not throw him in the Nile. But Jacobed instructed her daughter Miriam to create a basket that would float, put Moses in the basket and float him in the river, and let's see what happens. Miriam did that. The basket was in the river. Along came Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket. She sent her servant over to get the basket. They retrieved the basket out of the water. There was a baby in the basket, and the baby was crying. And Pharaoh's daughter took pity on this baby, and she says, I'm going to take this baby home. Just like maybe if one of our kids found a, a pet or an animal or something, she, she took this thing home and she made a decision that she was going to raise this baby. Problem was, this baby needed to be fed. And she was not in a position to nurse this baby. So she told her servant, go find a nursemaid. Find somebody who at this moment in time is capable of nursing this baby. And lo and behold, who did the servant find and bring home but Jacobed, Moses' mother? What luck. The result of this was, this good fortune, this good luck, that Moses was raised in royalty. He was raised in the house of, of the Egyptian king. The Egyptian king um, saw to it that his daughter's child, I guess he would be, yes, his daughter's child would be raised, would be educated in all the ways of royalty. So Moses learned to speak the Egyptian language. He learned what goes on in the royal courts. He lived, he lived there daily. He became one of the elites in, in, in the culture. A lot of uh, the tradition that we're told is that this Egyptian king, we believe, did not have any other children. The, the rest of the story is here. Moses was in line to be the king of Egypt. He wasn't just living a kid in the royal house. He was very high up. He was very fortunate. I mean, his destiny was towards greatness. He was privileged in every way that you can think that the prince who could be the king would be. He was a prince. He was wealthy. He didn't have to work for a living. You and I would say, what luck. 
would take luck for you and I not to have to work for a living, would it not? We would have to have something come our way that uh, was not of our own doing, more than likely. Moses, at this point in time, is completely unaware of his destiny. He's just living out his life as it's been handed to him. All right. What we should understand, though, that this 40, in this first 40 years of his life, as he was raised as an Egyptian, somehow, some way, he knew that he was not an Egyptian. He knew he was a Hebrew. His identity was that of a Hebrew. All right? I would say somehow, in some fashion, God created circumstances in which Moses would know and would identify as a Hebrew. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if you read the entire context of his life, what you're going to understand is this Hebrew Moses who one day went out and saw an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew and then murdered that Egyptian. I think you know that part of the story. Moses was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian who was beating up on a Hebrew because Moses identified at that moment in time as a Hebrew, not as an Egyptian. That wasn't a one-off. That wasn't a momentary event. That had to be something that Moses had cogitated for a long time. What am I doing here in the Egyptian king's court? Why am I destined, perhaps, to be the king of Egypt? I see the Egyptians, and I don't like what I see. When he saw that happen that day, that was the moment in time when what he had been thinking, what he had been feeling, and what he was in his heart came to action, and he acted on his Hebrew identity. The verse we read this morning says that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There's more to it than he just went out and saw one guy beaten up on another guy. He was already in a frame of mind that I, she is not my mother. I am not the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay? We, I wanna, I'm trying to put some, some skin on the bones of the story that we know here. What was going on in Moses' mind as he grew up? What was going on in Moses' mind that fateful day when he killed the Egyptian? The very next day after he killed the Egyptian, he saw two Hebrews arguing. His own people. And, he, and one of them was the bully, and he went to the bully, and he confronted the bully. And the bully basically told him, in no uncertain terms, who died and left you in charge? Who are you? To criticize me. You think you're the prince? You think you're the judge? All right. In that moment in time, what I would like you to, to, to take away from that incident is he was rejected by his own. What the guy said to him, what the one he, he approached, he actually said to him, You know what? Are you going to kill me too? I saw you kill that Egyptian. Moses thought he'd gotten away with killing the Egyptian, but now he realizes, I didn't get away with anything. This guy saw it. All right? And if he saw it, who else saw it? I'm in trouble. 
And I, I would suggest to you what's, what's evident in the, the amount of text we're given here is this, this Hebrew who saw it being the witness, it says Pharaoh found out and Pharaoh went to seek Moses to kill him. Well, how did Pharaoh find out if the Hebrew who witnessed it didn't tell him? He was betrayed. Moses was betrayed by his own. Important. Important. Bad luck. Moses knows Pharaoh's after him. And he knows that he's in trouble. So what does he do? Does he turn himself in? Does he hide? Yeah, in a way. He, he runs to a place called Midian. Stan, go ahead and give me that next slide. I want you to get the lay of the land here. I'm going to leave this slide up for a little bit just so you can get it. Uh, there's got three parts on the map. Up in the upper left the low is the lower Egypt. That's where uh, Moses, um, that, that's where uh, Israel became a nation. That's where they were in bondage. Uh, the red line there shows the route that they eventually took when they made the exodus out of upper Egypt there. And they went into the Sinai Peninsula. And you'll see there in the Sinai Peninsula, there's the wilderness of Shur, the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Sin. And uh, that's desert, desolate country. That is wilderness. That's where their journey started when they left. And then you'll see on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba there, you'll see Midian. All right. That's where he fled to. He fled not just a short town away, not just a little bit. He, he went across the wilderness. He went across the desert. He went across bodies of water to separate himself from Pharaoh because he knew Pharaoh was going to kill him. And Pharaoh knew he was a traitor. So he went to Midian. Let's talk about Midian just, just uh, for a second. If the map were extended a little more to the right, you would see that uh, around Midian there and beyond is wilderness as well. We're still in the desert. We're still in desolate, dry land. But who lives there but the people, let's call them the Midianites. Sometimes we also call them the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites are named after Ishmael, right? The son of Hagar, who was the handmaid of Ab Abraham. When Abraham and Sarah thought um, well, he were never going to get pregnant, he went and laid with Hagar, and she conceived, and Ishmael was the output of that, and be eventually became an outcast to the Israel culture. So we need to understand that the Midianites, or the Ishmaelites, whichever we want to call them, are Hebrews. These are more Hebrews. These are sons of Abraham. But it's an entirely different branch of the family. This branch, the, the branch of the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that are over in Egypt and, and are about to come out in the Exodus, they are the sons of Jacob. Their mother, great-grandmother, was Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, products of that family, that side of the tree. Abraham, after Sarah died, got remarried. He, he mar married uh, a woman named Keturah. She, they had several children. One of those children was named Midian, and this is that family. Okay, So they have a blood link. They're all Hebrew, but, but he fled to a group of people that he felt safe with that were Hebrew, but really had no real identity or relationship with the sons of Jacob. Are you with me? 
Okay, that's a lot of history here. Interesting note. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became a nation. Those 12 sons had a problem and that one of the sons named Joseph, the other brothers thought, Dad, Jacob, likes Joseph best. And they couldn't settle with that, so they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. What happened was, when they decided to do that on that day, to ditch their brother, along came some Midianites, slave traders. And the Midianites purchased Joseph. The Midianites took Joseph over to Egypt and sold Joseph to the Egyptian pharaoh. These Midianites have a history. They have a history. They're, they're, they're pretty ambitious. It's not like they're in relationship with the Egyptians, but they're trade partners. They probably have a pretty ambivalent relationship with each other, but nevertheless, they know each other. But the context I'm trying to give you is Moses knows he's safe with this branch of the Hebrew party who really will trade with Egypt, but aren't necessarily tied to them at the, or connected to them at the hip. All right? Context. Then what happens? Moses goes to Midian, meets a woman at the well there, and he marries her. Her father happens to be um, a um, Midianite priest, Jethro. So he lives there uh, for 40 years. Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian. Then he goes to Midian and he lives there another 40 years. Anybody here never heard this story before? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm speaking to the choir here. I'll get you somewhere eventually. He's lived there for 40 years, and, I, and I'm, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit to you. What I want you to understand about this culture that he's moved to, he's gone from royalty to privilege and everything. Now he's living, you know, I, I don't want to say with the Taliban, but, but he's living with a nomadic third world country, tribe, primitive. They're shepherds, they're nomads, they're desert people. No water, no land, no toasters, microwaves, or conveniences. He's living in a third world situation now with these people. And what he has become, rather than an heir to the Egyptian throne, he's a shepherd. He tends sheep in the desert. Basically, what he has done, a member of royalty has gone to live with the common man. Basically, what has happened here, Moses has emptied himself of his royalty of all privilege. Some of you see where I'm going with this thing, don't you? He's from the priestly line. He's been rejected by his own. He's emptied himself of privilege. And he's chose the company of the lonely. That's Moses. What are we, what are we supposed to see here? He's living in the desert now for 40 years. He's uh, shepherding uh, some sheep. 
What do you think goes through his mind? Does he have regrets? Does he wish that he had stayed? I think if we read the text and we read the whole story, we come to the conclusion he's at peace. He's at peace with what he's done because he knows he's a Hebrew. How it came to pass that he knew he was a Hebrew, we don't know for sure, but we know he knows he's a Hebrew. And he's comfortable in that skin. His royal bringing, however, has taught him about royalty. He knows how to communicate with royalty. He can speak the language. He has that in his quiver. Likewise, now he's lived in the desert for 40 years. He knows how to survive. He knows how to find water. He knows how to, to feed an animal there in the desert. He has that in his quiver. What luck. There's two things in play here. The first thing is the free will of Moses. Moses has made choices in his life. He, he's, he's lived his life. He's seen the circumstances of his life, and he's made choices. The, the one biggest choice he made was to kill that Egyptian. And I think he's at peace with it, and I think he's, he's living it. And, and his circumstances, he is where he is because of the decisions he's made. But the second thing that's in play here is the sovereign purpose of God. Because I, I, I think that we can see God acting here. I, I think even before Moses is saved, all of the circumstances of Moses' life have led him to where he is. He would not be here if all of the circumstances I've just uh, talked to you about uh, had not occurred. So God's will, God's purpose is in play, Moses' life and decisions are in play, and these two things are happening, and occasionally they intersect, don't they? But they never collide. They always concur. God will have his purpose in Moses' life in spite of the fact that Moses is a sinner. Why has God chosen a sinner for the purpose that he has intended? I always answer that question by saying when he looked at the pool of humanity, there were nobody but sinners to choose from. Okay, So he has chosen Moses, just like he chose David a sinner, just like he chose Paul a sinner, and he's using them for his purpose. He has chosen Moses. What has Moses given up along the way by his own free will? He, he has given up wealth. All right. I don't know what the pay grade or pay rate was, pay scale was for a shepherd in the Midianite desert, but I'm sure it wasn't much. He, he's given up uh, whatever he might have had in terms of material possessions. He's given up privilege. He's given up status. He's given up all comforts. He's given up the pleasures. You know, can you imagine what it would be like for him living in that royal court, knowing the Egyptian culture as we know it? He could have had any woman he wanted. He could have had as many women as he wanted in any way that he wanted. Now where does he find himself? Out in the desert with sheep. What has Moses' life decisions led to? What are, what are his circumstances? At the same time, somehow, God has given him an unshakable identity that he's a Hebrew, and this is where he belongs, and this is God, God's work. Let's keep going. That's Moses, the unbeliever. Now then, we find ourselves, uh, how does Moses come to faith? We find ourselves, look at the, uh, the map here again. Um, Moses fled to Midian, 
and he's living in Midian with his wife Zephora and his uh, father-in-law Jethro and that whole community. And one day he's out shepherding his sheep. But where is he shepherding? He's actually shepherding there in the middle. At the, in the middle, at the bottom, it says Rephidim Mount Sinai, also known in the book of uh, Exodus as the Mountain of God, also known as Mount Horeb. Look how far he is. He's away. He's at the base of Mount Sinai, shepherding sheep. Look how far from home he is. Uh, I'm, I'm pointing this out just how desolate is his life, how lonely is his life, how far has he fallen in his life. That he's, this is the location at the place, at the, the foot of the mountain, the foot of the mountain of God, where he stands with his sheep and he sees a burning bush. And the burning bush is not consumed by the fire. And a voice speaks to him, first an angel of the Lord, and then the Lord himself speaks to him. And the Lord tells Moses, I got a plan for you, and this is what it is. So Moses has his whole life history, everything that he's done, and all of a sudden he has an encounter with God. God tells him what his plans are for him and that he's going to lead these people out and, and lead them across the desert back to the promised land. And Moses is listening. And what does he do? He does what you and I would do. He tells God, I'm not the right guy. He makes five arguments in protest that I'm not the guy. You got the wrong guy here. And I'll cut it quick to the end. God tells Moses in the end, pick up your staff and go. You're going. And Moses goes. And Moses is obedient. And from that point forward in Moses' life, he is now a man of faith. And he takes on the mission, seemingly a mission impossible. Moses, go back to Pharaoh where you're wanted. Confront him. Tell him, you know, to let my people go. And let me tell you, Moses, when you go back there, he's not going to listen. Oh, yeah, I like that assignment. You know, th that's good. But Moses goes. We know the rest of the story. Moses approaches Pharaoh ten times. God sends ten plagues. Eventually, Pharaoh relents, and he lets the people go, and Moses leads them out across into the desert. They cross the Red Sea. They spend uh, two months getting down in the red line to Mount Sinai. And in the course of that journey, there's nothing but trouble. There's no water. There's no food. The people are grumbling. They want to go back. Right? At least we were getting, you know, bread and water or, or MREs or whatever they were feeding them. It wasn't good, but at least we had something. And Moses probably was regretting the mission he'd accepted and then he was on, but by faith he continued to do it. Where this is going, we've spent 40 years in the royal court, we spent 40 years in Midian, and now we're starting the next 40 years before we get to the promised land. And I'm not going to go through all of those stories, I'm just going to tell you, you probably know most of them or many of them, it was some hard times there in the desert for 40 years. The Israelites grumbled so much, so bad, that God says, fine, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land until that whole generation dies, another 40 years in the desert. By the time Moses dies, he's 120 years old. The last 40 years are not good. They're hard work. They are rejection. What a story. What a life. What could possibly be the motive that kept him going day after day after day, year after year? I got a verse for you. 
Hebrews chapter 11, 24 to 29. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea onto dry land. What was the gas in Moses' tank? It was faith. It was belief. It was knowing who God is and knowing what God had done. I'm going to suggest uh, so something to you here. If you could put your, yourself in Moses' shoes at, at this moment in time, at this moment in his life, when by faith he's lived with all of this, he's 120 years into, into the whole ordeal, what would he have thought? What pieces of the puzzle could he have put together? Could he have put together how God had been with him there in that basket in the River Nile? Could he have put together the fact that he was raised in a royal court and therefore was in a position to go back and deal with Pharaoh? Could he have put together that his life in the desert in Midian was planned by God? That his whole life from beginning to end was nothing but a plan of God executed in his life. I don't see any other way to look at this. Bruce kind of took us there this morning in his call to worship, other than to say God knew Moses before he was born. God had a plan for Moses' life before Moses was born. God knew exactly where this was going, and I think at the, by the end of Moses' life, he saw the big picture. He saw God's hand in it all. He saw how God had prepared him for the entirety of his life and the mission that he was given. Even before he, he met God at the burning bush, God was in my life. God was leading me. God was teaching me things. He was showing me things. He put people in my life. He put circumstances in my life that prepared me for when I came to faith and how I would live my life. So what do we learn? Let's moralize. Before we moralize, let's talk about Jesus. Moses was a priest, right? Levite. He was also a prophet. He heard the voice of God and he spoke what God told him to. And he, and he was a ruler. He ruled Israel. He, re, he ruled this nation. He was a prophet, priest, and king of sorts, as was Jesus. He was rejected by his own, as was Jesus. He emptied himself of his royalty to live in the company of the lowly, as did Jesus. Moses led his people out of bondage. They were enslaved, as did Jesus. Jesus led us out of spiritual bondage and enslavement to sin. What I'm trying to do here first, I'm not allowed to moralize with you until I, I take Moses to the cross. And, I, and I'm, gonna, so I'm taking Moses to the cross first, and I'm showing you he was a type of Christ. That's the word we used. He was a picture, he was a foreshadowing of a Christ to come that would be a Savior. And God had a plan for him from the beginning on what he wanted him to do. And he did it. Moses points us to a Christ that was coming. Now we can moralize. <laughs> what do we learn 
from Moses and his circumstances. He was a flawed man, but he accepted his mission and he obeyed. His faith was genuine. His faith was real. It's by faith that he did all those things that I, I just read to you. Initial pro protesting aside, he came to faith. And it was his faith that got him where he needed to be. What do you and I learn from his circumstances? What good works has God prepared for you before time? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me say that again. For we are His workmanship, created by Christ Jesus for good works. You were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I picked Moses to moralize because we can plainly see from his life that God had a plan for him before time that was executed in his life circumstances and God has a plan for you and I that was planned before time and the circumstances of your life right now, every day, every person, every year, every event that has led to you to this moment that you are sitting in this chair was planned for you before time in some way, shape, or form to prepare you to do what God had, some good works, to do the good works God planned for you before time. Have you nailed that down? Do you have any idea how the circumstances of your life have specifically led you to some specific things, some specific good works that you were planned to do before you were born? If you haven't calculated that and you call yourself a person of faith, are you high-centered? Why are you high-centered? Faith comes in a moment. Belief comes in a moment. In a moment at the burning bush, Moses believed. In some moment in time, you, I think, are professing to me that you are a person of faith and you believe. You believe what the Bible says. You believe about your sin. You believe that Jesus died on the cross. You have faith. But that's not the end of faith. We see from Hebrews chapter 11, people of faith do things. They act on their faith. They live out their faith. They don't just have faith. Faith is a verb, in a sense. How are you living your faith? If you're high-centered, I'm going to suggest to you, perhaps, and myself, that it's because I like my privilege. I like my life just the way it is. I like my wealth. I like my time. I like my circumstance. I like the order I've put my life in, and I would have to give up at great cost to follow Christ in the way that He has planned for me to follow Him. What did Moses give up to be 
and identify with who he was and live and act on his faith. You and I get stuck real easy. We get stuck real fast. We get high-centered real fast because we're not willing to give up and let go of life as Moses did. Moses was an example. Now, there may be some of you sitting here who are not willing to give up or pay a cost or pay a price at all because you don't have faith. I could quote uh, Romans 14, 23 to you, but I'll, let me give you another one. How, how about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? Without faith, we're, we're talking about people of faith. We're talking about what they, what they were able to do with faith. 11, 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that, the rewards, and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith... There's nothing you do of value in God's eyes. I've just presented to you uh, Moses uh, in two ways. I, he, Moses had two lives, okay? I always think of my dad. My dad says, he's always said before he passed that he had two lives. He lived two lives. I, I put it this way. I had two dads. I've shared some of the, this with you guys before. My first dad... Uh, was a good guy. <laughs> okay, but he drank a lot of beer. Uh, he partied. He, he, that's the dad that raised me. And uh, actually, when I was in the fifth grade, we were, we were Catholic. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, dad converted to Catholicism. But in his later years, dad shared with me that he never had any conviction about converting to Catholicism. He just saw the, us kids getting older, and it was embarrassing him that he didn't go to church with us on Sundays. So he said, what the heck, I'll convert and I'll go to start going to church with him. No convictions. So that's the dad that raised me. When I moved out of the house and, and got married and went to college, whatever, dad was watching Billy Graham on TV one night and got saved. And I don't know if Billy Graham gave him this verse or not, but dad went to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and he read it and heard about it and he went and looked. says, you know, you're going to be a new creature. And Dad said he went and he stared at himself in the mirror in the bathroom, and he says, "I'm I'm no new creature. I've been faking it." And my dad's life changed. Uh, the dad that raided my younger uh, siblings was a different man. I and that was a man, a dad I came to know too, and a dad in many ways that led me to uh, to Christ. He w he was instrumental in me getting there. What I'm saying is, faith is what enabled Moses to be what he was called to be. Moses prepared for, was prepared for life for that moment in time when he would come to faith. And when he came to faith, that was the beginning. God always completes what he starts in each one of us. We don't stay high-centered. So let's get practical here. If you are Moses, I'm, 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 I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a, a WWMD here. WWMD, and that's nothing to do with weapons of mass destructions. That is, what would Moses do? Okay? <laughs> Not original, but what the heck. <clears throat> if, if Moses had your life and Moses had your circumstances, what would Moses do? What would Moses have you do to replicate what he did to be the man God planned him to be. 
Would you need to sell your house? Would you need to get rid of your job? Is your job preventing you from being the Christian person you need to be and having the time to be the Christian person, mother, father, dad, servant that you need to be? You might have to move to a smaller house. You might have to change the people, the play, your playground, the people you hang out with. You might have to completely redirect your whole financial system and the money you spend on yourself and your toys and your things to be the man or woman that God had planned before time for you to be. You are not going to be the person God planned for you to be unless you're willing to pay the cost. You don't come to faith and live happily ever after, yet. We are works in progress. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What are your fleeting pleasures of sin? What earthly estate are you hell-bent to build and to maintain and to grow? Can you take your family off the pedestal? That is not the only thing God planned for you to take care of is your family. It's a good thing, done well, done right, but it is not the only thing. Moses said he would rather give up his sin than face the rebuke of Christ. Are we willing to give up our sin? Are we willing to give up some things that hold us back to keep us high-centered? Without faith, you're not capable of doing anything that pleases God. When I was a police officer, sometimes we'd, I'd go to a crime scene or an accident scene or something to be roped off or whatever, and our standard mantra was, you know, keep moving, you know, nothing to see here. And we would say that over and over again, and hopefully somebody would listen. Hopefully people would move on. Hopefully they would, would keep going. They wouldn't cause more chaos to the chaos that was already present. So I'm sharing something with you this morning because back then a lot of people didn't listen. They just stared at you. And a lot of you guys right now are just staring back at me. <laughs> I brought this this morning because I, it, it, the Lord brought it to mind. Grant said, Wednesday, can you put something together? I said, yeah, and this is what it turned out to be. I'm saying, as we try to say every Sunday, this is the word of the Lord. I did my best. Take it or leave it, but let's keep moving. Let's do something with it. Let's let it be active in our lives. Go home, get out a pad, and write down, how am I spending my money? How am I spending my time? What's important to me? What could I get rid of over here so that I could be the man God planned for me to be? What are your life circumstances? They're unique to you, but God put it together. And then he gave you faith. Your free will and his sovereign will for, and purpose for your life are supposed to come together to accomplish something. And we pray that they do. Lord, show us what Moses would do with our lives. Show us what you would have us to do with our lives. Thank you. Thank you for Moses showing us that you, a better Moses, was coming. 
Thank you for showing us through Moses what a man of faith looks like, what a person of faith looks like. Change us, make us brave, brave enough to be changed in our own free will, in our own way. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me. I think the words of this song drive the points I've been trying to make home just a little bit.